Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Whew, it is good to be back. This week we are we're going for it. You know, I made a commitment long ago that I would always share the voice of truth, that, that I'd be committed to the truth. That at the cost of discomfort, that at the cost of not being liked, that at the cost of anything. Because truth and being able to have a conversation about every angle is how we learn, is how we, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable in order to have our point of view altered. I put out a podcast episode about three months ago that was called Can You Hold Space? And really the concept of it was like, can you actually be open to the possibility that we might not be handling this coronavirus thing properly? Like, can we just be open to it? I wasn't saying we were doing that. I was just saying, can we be open to other points of view? I'm not happy about censorship that occurs in this subject because I used to be a pharmaceutical rep. I know that data can be skewed. I know I was a rep for 14 years. I know that one physician's message doesn't mean it's just the truth. Just because someone's a doctor doesn't make them God. And we have really made doctors our gods. You know, and and of course, I have many friends who are physicians and nurses and healthcare practitioners, and they're amazing. I know so many who are fantastic. And I also know that sometimes there are in industry biases and where um, budgets come from and grant money comes from can influence opinions and all that type of stuff because people in those positions are human. They are not void of influence. And, and I hold that true for any side of any argument. And so I was very interested when any physician or healthcare practitioner spoke out about coronavirus, they were instantly censored. And I was like, why is that? Because I've seen beautiful debates happen about subjects. Why can't we just put three physicians at a table and have a beautiful conversation about everyone's experience and, you know, what is, what is actually going on? It's been interesting that that hasn't happened in the media. And I think this continues to perpetuate a distrust that we have now for the media. We're finally seeing the truth about stories. Um, you know, you watch documentaries on Netflix where, of course, there's a bias of a producer and a director um, and a writer. But there, at least you're getting other angles when we were just sold stories about situations that we just believe. And we just believed that the media was gospel. And it is time to not believe everything you're fucking told. Just like you should question what you were taught about your religion and how you were taught to be in relationship. You should be curious and question anything that does not lead you to more love, to more care, to more um, connectiveness. And I said three months ago that I was really worried about the mental health crisis that was about to occur. And I don't, we aren't even on the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg of what is about to fucking happen. The next three, five, ten years, the wealth transfer that's occurred with all the trillions of dollars that have been invested into corporations to saving them. And some got to people's hands, but not to everybody's hands, not to the small businesses that have needed them. We have to shop local. We have to support our people. We have to hug our friends. Now is more time than ever. And I'm revved up about this because we fucking matter. People matter and our safety matters and being taught that strangers are enemies and another person is a biological threat to you is not healthy and social isolation is not healthy, that this is a large 
point of conversation that if you are triggered by, you should be curious about because the trigger is not good for your health either. Being in a constant state of fear and a constant state of threat is not good for you. And other people are not a biological threat to you. And I have been, I wanted to bring someone on the podcast who is incredibly credible, incredibly credible, a physician to talk about all the information we're taking in and actually a different way of seeing things. That was important to me. I watched him on numerous podcasts and I was just, wow, like that is how I see this world. And, you know, we talk about relationship to other and we don't often talk about our relationship to nature and the planet and biodiversity. And so we're going to talk about that. So today I'm so excited. I want to first let you know that if you are potentially triggered and, and, and all those things about this, just hold grace in your hands as you listen to this podcast and be willing to be uncomfortable. That's the only way you have connected relationships that get deeper intimacy, which means you will develop more intimacy with your belief system because we have what we call confirmation bias, which is we seek information that confirms what we believe and we don't even often even notice information or we cancel it if it it doesn't support what we believe, hence cancel culture, right? This is about diving into what is the truth? What does the data tell us? How could we look at this in a different way? What is this an invitation towards? Because there is no doubt that people are suffering and people are dying. And what does the data really show us? So I was so excited to have Dr. Zach Bush He's a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He is triple board certified. He's an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health. The breakthrough science that Dr. Bush and his colleagues have delivered offer profound new insights into human health and longevity. His educational efforts provide a grassroots foundation from which we can launch change in our legislative our legislative decisions, ultimately upshifting consumer behavior to bring about radical change in the mega industries of big farming, big pharma, and Western medicine at large. Gosh, I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation because it was, he's just, ah, it's just beautiful. I wanted to take a quick break in this episode to talk to you about the greatest struggle that people have in dating. And that is, asking the right questions. And not just the right questions, but asking hard questions. Questions that determine if someone wants what you want, what you are, what your relationship status is, that that deepen vulnerability and intimacy. And ultimately, asking the right questions allows you to get to know someone on a deeper level, gets to know their values, get to know whether they're a good fit for you. Now, I recognize that When I get feedback on asking questions, people say that's too hard to ask or it's too soon to ask that or whatever the excuse or thought or feeling or fear might be. And so I thought, shit, let me ask the hard questions. And that's why I created Create the Love Cards. Create the Love Cards is created with such intention for you to deepen your conversations on dating. And because of that, the deck, when you open it up, it fits two smartphones. So you can put your phone inside the box as you take the cards out so you can both be present. Now, if someone doesn't want to play, I'm like, swipe left. That's a red flag. Like, who doesn't want to play a game? Second, I've got it in four sections. So we've got foreplay, diving deeper, 
too much information because would it be a deck from me if it didn't have TMI? And building chemistry. So there's four sections for you to explore the landscapes of one another and see if you're a good fit. If you want to have deeper conversations, if you want to take this deck of cards on your dates or on your date night, or you think this would be a good gift for a couple, then go to createthelove.com slash cards. I put them at a really accessible price of 30 bucks, and I can't wait for you to check them out. They've received rave reviews. People are loving them. I have actually one friend who took them out on its second date with someone that she was hitting it off with. And after she got the answers to the questions that the deck provided, she realized that this person was not a good fit and swiped left and now is in a relationship with someone she loves. So that's what dating is about, is it's about filtering. And also my intention is to support you along that journey to not just finding the person that you want, but if you're with them, asking the questions that help create and deepen intimacy. So go to createthelove.com slash cards and grab a set now. So without further ado, here's Dr. Zach Bush. Very good to be on with you. Thanks so much, Mark. You know, I, uh, I've, as I was saying before we hit record, I've heard you speak on quite a few platforms now. And in my journey of trying to understand what's going on in the world and having been, uh, and maybe this will be news to the people listening, having been a pharmaceutical rep for uh, almost 14 years, I was sifting through the information, trying to figure out which was not, you know, which was uh, non-biased. And I was having a really hard time coming to terms with the messages I've been hearing from media versus what I was feeling, what I was seeing in the actual data. And, you know, I wanted, when I finally heard you speak, I was like, yes, yes, a physician who's making this data make sense. So thank you so much for being courageous and, and honoring um, your truth in, in your uh, sharing of information. So I appreciate that. Awesome. It's my pleasure. It's very exciting time to be human right now. We're in an extraordinary tipping point of this experiment. <laughs> yeah, isn't that so true? And, and you know, like I speak about relationships and, and about not just romantic, but really in the context of, you know, we're in relationship with anything that is not us, you know, and, and in some sense that sort of gets dissolved with the philosophical idea of being connected to everything. Um, but I think, you know, what you make sense of is we're really in this trying time of our relationship, not just to the planet, but also our health and mortality. And everything seems to have been amplified by many of life's most recent events. Yeah, I think you're hitting on all the right levels there. I think that uh, the human condition is fractal in both its truth as well as its illusion. And we've painted ourselves into an illusionary relationship with certainly nature as a whole, but also even, I think, our, our real selves. Uh, we, we've lost our self-identity in the illusion that we're separate from Mother Nature and in our constant conflict with her in, in that warrior mentality of the human spirit. We have so put ourselves at odds with and in conflict with the very foundations of biologic health through screwing up the very foundations of philosophy ultimately. And so it's, it's just this interesting fractal state where you can look at the, the economics, the sociopolitics, the, the uh, big science industries, healthcare system as a whole, or family relationships, or in fact, you know, our quiet time 
as in our mindfulness state. And we're going to be butting into the same kind of glass ceilings and walls of this cubicle that we've built ourselves, uh, thinking that we were some sort of manifest destiny, some sort of pinnacle of, of consciousness missing the boat that we, there is no pinnacle consciousness and, and we are supposed to be in flow with something much greater than ourselves. And, uh, that's, it's a sad scenario, but also so fascinating that after a 200,000 year journey as homo sapiens sapiens, we might just be able to become sapiens once <laughs> we might be wise. <laughs> well, isn't that fascinating that in the, the birth of consciousness, you know, the ability to think about how you think there was also, it seems like, you know, the birth of separateness, the birth of arrogance, that we are separate from this planet, that we can uh, take from it and do what we wish with it. And, and, and we forget, like, even in some ways, I think medicine, we have this idea that we cannot be in right relationship with the land, with our own bodies, and then a pill will save us. This thing we, from our, oh, our extended consciousness will get us this get out of jail free card sort of experience. Yeah, I, I think that there's uh, something, there's a story that's certainly been propagated or perpetuated through our religious structures that has us convinced that since there is some external heaven that is, you know, under the, the rulership of some sort of external deity or God, then there's not a huge amount of responsibility for us to take care of this place that we're in. And we've uh, really deluded ourselves that somehow heaven is separate from what we could have here in front of us. And uh, I think a simple rereading or restructuring of any scripture you pick, whether it be the Quran or the, the Bible or whatever you want to pick, you're going to find out that it begins with a story of unique relationship and dependent relationship within nature. And, and we were completely supplied for within that nature until we started to, you know, take that left-hand turn to say that we were going to somehow mandate something with expectation what we could extract from this relationship or we could uh, micromanage that relationship or whatever it is. But we put ourselves at odds, I think, in the same way that we do in a dating relationship with a planet and within nature and we certainly then turn that same ethos of conquer, uh, conquership or whatever it is into uh, human relationship. And we're all constantly trying to conquer one another, whether it be nation to nation or community to community or, uh, you know, alpha in the office, whatever it is. So uh, there's, there's a deep flaw in our separateness. But one of the unique things that microbiology has been teaching us in our labs the last 10 years is that it's only through biodiversity that health happens. And in biodiversity, interestingly, it, the first thing that happens is self-identity. And so there's a very interesting phenomenon there that I think could help reorient our entire psychology as a species, which is in our diversity of, of life. And certainly that's simple diversity such as race or socioeconomic or whatever you know, human structure there, but really speaking more broadly about diversity, the more microbiology, the more bacteria, fungi, and the rest that you have within your body, the more clear your boundaries become. And we see this under a microscope happening through the expression of the gut, vascular, and blood-brain barriers. And so these three big giant barrier systems are supposed to really be the foundation of how your body knows your you and you're going to mobilize an immune system and a neurologic system and orient an endocrine system and ultimately dictate a genomics system 
to or to the orientation of self. And you're going to express self through all of those mechanisms and all of those systems so that you can not only know who you are, but live in a thrive state as that individual. But it's so fascinating that that doesn't happen until you put a diverse microbiome communication network around that self barrier. And so we see the Velcro that holds these barriers together start to erode as you lose microbes uh, and specifically microbial diversity. Mm -hmm. And that's what's certainly happening in the human population is we see public health collapse. We see explosion of chronic disease all around the world over the last 30 years. It all happened when we started putting antibiotics into our food and water systems through herbicides primarily. And so in this march against bugs and against weeds, our herbicide and pesticide industry has sterilized the planet in such that we're losing microbial communication. We're losing the, the literal, literal wireless communication network of biology. And the first symptom in the human body is leak. We start to have an erosion of the the tight junctions or the Velcro that holds these barriers together. And so we start to lose self-identity as we lose microbial and ultimately life diversity within us and around us. And so it's a fascinating look at a nice checks and balances that I think nature built into us or God may have planned into a species that would try to take on some sort of God-like micromanagement of the planet and, and suck the life out of it. We could only suck it to a certain extent, and then we would collapse as a species. And so we will either go extinct over the next 100 years, or we're going to come into a new relationship with this concept of we need to make sure every industry, consumer product, transportation, energy, education, whatever it is, starts to align itself with soil, water, and air to support microbial diversity. And if we were to do that one singular mission within a decade, we might see actually not just improved human health, we might see an explosion of, uh, of creativity at the genetic level. We may be able to create bodies that literally have not existed before in regards to our regenerative capacity, our rate of healing, our, our life expectancy. You know, you go tick down all of the avenues that you would think of what would an ideal life look like. Uh, we could make the blue zones look like, you know, just a warm up, you know, the blue zones being where everybody lived over 100 years. Uh, we could literally at the cellular level start to see this extraordinary longevity where we're seeing 120, 150, 200 year capacities within us because we're we're reaching a biologic intelligence that's never existed before. And we can talk about, you know, why would you even need to go down that avenue? Isn't just good health enough? Yeah, I think it'd be great if everybody lived healthily till 80, 90 years old and then passed away. That'd be enough, perhaps. But I, I think that it's interesting to 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 leave open the opportunity for a health that's never been seen before. And that's not useful. It's not useful to live to 150 unless we're living differently in which we've yeah. changed our relationships. We're not extractive and consumptive, or we're actually regenerative in giving not just back to the planet, but finally to one another. And we start to act in kind, kindness and in regenerative relationship and in regenerative family uh, for the first time and communities being shaped around that and all of that. It's interesting to think of the over uh, sterilization that we're doing, or even, as you said, the infusion of antibiotics and uh, the, the design of how we're supposed to eat, you know, in the 80s and 90s. I mean, there was a real influx of sugar and then fats bad and then statins and blood pressure drugs. I mean, I sold the statins, so I, I'm, I'm sure I have some karma on my way. But, you know, it's a, 
it's interesting to see how all of these things combine to create sort of this storm that you're talking about, which we thought, like, I think on some level, and I've heard you say this in, in uh, some other talks that you've given, that it's not like these were all ill intent. On some way, there's like an altruism to the, the design of some of these things. But the cost of trying to create low cost food or trying to, you know, solve the cholesterol story or whatever it is, has been, as it seems like the birth of chronic illness, so much autoimmune, the insertion of um, numerous more and more vaccines. And we thought that would extend life, but it seems like it hasn't been doing that in the more recent years. Yeah. You know, what we've proven over the last, I'd say, hundred years is a, a pretty good estimate of, of the real proving grounds here is that technology does not equal health. And as we advance technologies that, that can increase convenience, the way in which we've defined convenience is typically around more distance from nature. And so if we don't actually have to go travel to somebody and we can just jump on an electrical interface like this, uh, then we've done our duty. And Mm-hmm. So that we are actually interacting right now within community as everybody's listening to this. We are we have all chosen to buy into the possibility that technology is the avenue towards convenient consumption of knowledge or convenient consumption of human thought. We're going to have to mature past that at some point. We're going to have to realize that uh, we don't get human interaction until there's energetic fellowship happening and there's real exchange of electromagnetic frequency and energy in this in a more direct fashion and we start to communicate through mindfulness and through silence perhaps more so than we will even words you know well i was really fascinated by your description of how like we think that flu seasons are seasonal because there's more viruses in the winter and so that's why you know we get this infusion in like october and november and i was really fascinated by how you described the actual fluctuations and why they occur. So if you could, uh, you know, um, speak a bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah. I think, you know, backing up just a moment, we can take a look at what we mean by the microbiome. So the microbiome is bacteria, fungi, protozoa, these tiny little organisms that really dictate most of life on earth. They, They compose most of life on earth and they generate life on earth as we understand it. They certainly generate the vitality within soil systems, which then are plant systems, which then are healthy animal systems. So the entire flora and fauna of the world, including ourselves, is stemming from the extraordinary metabolic capacity, the digestive capacity, and the fuel generation that these microbes are capable of. So that's kind of the foundation of life. Then there's the virome. And unfortunately, viruses have been clumped way too often over the last 100 years into this category of microbiome. But it turns out that the words micro and biome don't even can't even fit a virus in there. So for just from the raw, obvious definition of microbiome, which means small living organisms, a virus is not a living organism at all. It's actually just a, a tiny packet of genetic information that's transferred between living organisms. And so it's a communication network of the genome. And its whole purpose is to facilitate biodiversification and adaptive biology. And so when the climate changes or when a, a catastrophe on the, on the global level occurs and asteroid hits causes a great extinction event 55 million years ago, the virome is there to take the, the information being secreted by these big stressors in biology. And so if we see an extinction level stressor hit the planet, 
right now, humans are the, the extinction level stressor. So as we exert our toxicity on the planet and our consumptive behavior, we are putting all of the organisms of the planet, including ourselves, under enormous stress. And as a response to this stress, all of the organisms, including ourselves, start to exude stress signal in the form of the virome. And so we start exuding viruses that are finding adaptive biology. They are finding new niches, new loopholes, new opportunities to change to get around toxic pathways. Uh, one of the simplest versions of this is uh, weed uh, weeds in the field that will change their genetics to be resistant to the weed killer that you keep spraying. So if you keep spraying Roundup for a few years, you're going to start getting Roundup-resistant weeds. That's achieved through swapping of genomic information. And this can be done through the complexity of, of a virus, which is capable of traveling actually all the way around the world through air currents and tight pollen and all of this aerial spread. Or it can be uh, done in proximity where a single uh, bacterium in the soil can become resistant to an antimicrobial and pass that new adaptive uh, advantage to its neighbors without any uh, any need for reproduction. And so instead of passing down genes to their progeny, they can actually laterally hand off, they call it horizontal gene transfer, these adaptive information pieces or adaptive tricks in the genome to their neighbors. And so quickly a whole field of uh, Staph aureus bacteria in a hospital can become drug resistant to the methicillin statin, uh, antibiotics we're using there uh, to become this, you know, and, and it won't just be one bacteria, it can immediately pass it to all of the other Staph aureus or other organisms in the field. Um, and so same with a weed, you, you develop uh, weed resistance where this has happened with, of course, our GMO corn and soybean, all of this genetic modification we did by human means can then spread to other other weeds as they find either that loophole or other loopholes around this herbicide toxin of Roundup. And so what we've done over the last 30 years of this profound, extreme microbial stress is we've accelerated the amount of viromic information in the environment around us. And we've done that through increasing the stress of the organisms. At least 50% of the viruses in, around the, the planet are being expressed by bacteria under stress, not just multicellular organisms like plants, animals, and humans. And so we are, you know, just part and parcel to the biologic transfer of genomics. The sheer amount of this genetic in information in the environment is staggering. There's literally no other numbers really bigger than this in, in the universe. And so you've got 10 to the 31 viruses in the air we breathe. You've got another 10 to the 31 viruses in the seawater, which then goes airborne at every beach. And so you'll see these viruses get tossed in the air. There's another 10 to the 30 viruses in the soil. There's 10 to the eighth viruses in the stool of a child at seven days of age. 10 to the eighth is 100 million viruses sitting in the stool there. And so you can very quickly hit these massive numbers of, of vir viromic variety and genomic you know, potential within a child who can't even make an antibody yet. That baby won't make an antibody until they're six months of age or it won't make their full suite of antibodies until six months of age. And, you know, we've always said, well, moms just pass the, the antibodies on to the breast milk and that's how they survive. Well, of course, now 50% of kids around the world are, are, will never see breast milk and they're all raised on crap formulas loaded with sugar and soy and everything else. And so, and those babies aren't dying of these 10 to the 800 million viruses in their every gram of their stool. And so the, the proof is in the pudding now after 20 years of genomics to find out 
we're literally swimming in a pool of viromic genomic information yeah. and it's not hurting us. In fact, it's there for our benefit. It's there for our adaptation, for our ultimate survival. And if we go extinct, interestingly, we're going to leave behind a pool of genomic information in the virome for more life to occur later. And what we've seen after every one of the big extinction events on the planet is actually a diversification of, bio, of biological life after the extinction. There will be more biodiversity after the extinction than there was before, millions of years later, and there's going to be a higher level of intelligence. And so this is kind of exactly what the virome's purpose is, is when there is stress, let's figure out how to do life better. Let's figure out how to be more resilient. Let's figure out how to heal faster. Let's figure out how to you know, escape disaster easier, how to adapt to different ecologies faster. And if we look at the human genome, we find out that this is how we were built. And so the more than 50% of the human genome was, and I'm sure we're going to ultimately find out it's 99% of the human genome, but already we've identified that 50% or more of the genome is uh, due to the direct insertion of viral genomics into the uh, con complex cellular genomics of animals before us and homo, you know, all of the mammals and homo sapiens. So there's a long line of genomic insertions. And some of these genes that have been inserted are critical for our resilience and our adaptability that allowed us to become who we are and dominate a planet. One of these is the critical gene inside of a stem cell that allows that stem cell to become a liver cell or a kidney cell or a bone cell or a brain cell. To be a pluripotent or, or multi-targeted you know, stem cell you have to have a special gene that's that inserted by an RNA virus that allows the transcription device to move across the bumper blocks that would normally keep it confined to a single cell type. So if a liver cell proliferates, it can only make other liver cells. But because we we had an update from a virus, you know, in the last few million years, you know, some, certainly way after the dinosaurs and all of this, we were left with a new gene somewhere in that virome that allowed us to become even more adaptive and more regenerative than any, any you know, life form before us. And so it's, it's likely that you know, we will we'll ultimately participate in, in the genomic record of the planet to leave behind a trace of what's, what's the true potential. My excitement is, is as a rational species that's been given the gift of being able to see our own extinction coming at us, we could change behavior. And if we change behavior right now, we've already caused, you know, 50% extinction of the planet over the last 50 years. And we're, you know, accelerating that rate quickly. But in the event that we were able to avoid this extinction event through a, a real radical change in direction, there's still more genomic information than has ever been on the planet before that. And so it's quite possible that we will get to see in the lifespan of our species a new transformative capacity within us. And that's why I was speaking earlier to the possibility of why would, why would we think that just, you know, eliminating cancer was a good goal of the health system. I think a good goal for the health system is can, how much of this new genomic adaptation can we bring into the human biology to make an adaptive human being that is more resilient to the toxins and stressors of, of life on earth, especially as we work to clean this thing up. And so there's, there's huge potential. I say all of that because I'm answering a question that you asked me some time ago that had absolutely nothing to do with that. But until you have that backdrop, I think that it's, it's very difficult then to understand what is this deluge of information we're getting around a pandemic or around the influenza, you know, season, as they call it and all this. What is flu season? And if all these viruses are around us all the time, 
why does the CDC keep telling us there's 10 really bad viruses if in fact there's 10 to the 31, which is, you know, try to put that in perspective because 10 to the 31 doesn't make sense to any of us. <laughs> 10 to the 31 is a one with 31 zeros. Put that in perspective, it's 10 million times more, not, not 10 million plus, it's 10 million times the number of stars in the entire universe. And uh -huh. so when you start to really wrap your head around this, and that's just the number of viruses in the air, another 10 to the million, 10 million times more stars in the universe in the ocean, another 10 to the 30 in the soils beneath our feet. So there's no way there's 10 of these things that are against us. If there's any viruses against us, we would have never been here. And we know because of, you know, these new genomic studies looking at the stool of babies, for example, that the, 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 the viruses are completely innate to us. They, they are necessary within us from the first breaths of life, and they're not attacking us. They're somehow supporting life within us, and genomic life within us is transporting knowledge between species and across regional spaces of stressors, which is really important for these babies today. And so a baby today that's born into the world is in the first couple of moments going to be exposed to carbon particulate matter in the air, laced with cyanide, laced with herbicide, glyphosate, and Roundup, laced with you know 13 other pesticides and herbicides, at least, depending on marketplace, you may be up in 120 different chemicals they're seeing. They're going to be getting Teflon while they're in utero through the mom's bloodstream. Uh, they're going to be getting you know just the enormous amount of uh, herbicide in the breast milk. And so that baby, if there's ever been a, a human being that needed adaptation signal from the microbiome and find their genomic you know, preparation for this toxic world they were just born into, it's right now. And if we move in with this like warfare mentality that we are fighting against the viruses and they are attacking us, we're going to ultimately undermine these children's only opportunity to survive, which is going to be a cooperative, co-creative process with Mother Nature, the microbiome and the virome as a whole rather than one of combat. And so this is my mission is to really help us let go of the old argument of anti-vax or pro-vax. Vaccines are an old concept as if we were trying to fight against anything. There's no way that there's just 10 bad viruses out there. All viruses are benign if the terrain of the human body is in a healthy balanced state. And it's only when we go screw up that terrain that we start to see viruses become confusing or difficult for our body to manage. And this is where flu season comes in. So I'll finally answer your question. Thank you for that <laughs> background, though. Now I feel like I just went to school. That's great. <laughs> right. For better or worse, you just made it through yeah. a whole hour of biology. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the take home is, you know, we've been damning this, this flu influenza as if it's this seasonal attack from China. And we've built this very complicated story about how there's like six or eight strains of new virus and we rush over every fall to see which strains of virus are starting to come into the environment in China or South Asia sometime between the months of, of you know, July and, and, uh, and September. And we're rushing to hurry up and, and figure out how to build a vaccine against the three species that we're going to guess or the three genetic, they're not species, they're not living organisms, but the three genetic sequences that we're going to go battle this year. And of course, every couple of years, like every other year or so, we find out that we picked the wrong three. And the ones that went around the world this year were actually not even the ones that we, we tried to vaccinate everybody against. But a deeper problem is, is that uh, we have the belief that these things are attacking the world, when in fact, these viruses are ever present. 
there's there's viromic information all the time, every year, every day, every week, blah, blah, blah. And flu season somehow hits us every third week in the entire northern hemisphere throughout the world. How is it possible that some new virus pops up and schedules the third week of November to be the moment that we all start to get flu? It's literally biologically impossible that a virome of that complexity is going to somehow engineer a new pandemic every year. So what is happening? Why the heck is do we see respiratory spikes every year? in the third week of November. And I, I've been teaching different parts of this for years, but it was actually this last pandemic that really made me do the deep dive to really kind of crystallize this in my mind of just how deep this truth goes. But it turns out that between October 23rd through the third week of October to the third week of November, in those four weeks, the amount of carbon dioxide and carbon particulate in the atmosphere goes up logarithmically, meaning thousands of fold. And so you see the really rapid acceleration of carbon particulate in the air. And the reason that's happening has nothing to do with viruses or bacteria or anything. A little bit about bacteria, I suppose. But what's happening is the soil is going into a quiescent stage as fall and winter set in. And so what's happening is we're moving into solar winter in, the, in that period of time. And as we approach solar winter in December there, we lose the capacity to pull carbon dioxide into our, our soils and plant systems uh, rapidly enough to keep the atmosphere clean. So every year between third week in November, October and third week in November, those four week period, we see this massive explosion of CO2 in the atmosphere. And it turns out that radically changes our, our relationship to the viruses in particular. Influenza has been shown to be able to tag PM 2.5, which is a small carbon particulate in uh, the, the air pollution that we produce as humans. And so this little carbon snowball, if you will, will start to bind a bunch of viruses on it. So now, instead of having a well-dispersed genomic update going out to the world, which is how viruses should work, they should travel through the air systems and all of that in a well-dispersed space. And then your lungs might see a small amount of it, and it's easy to stay in balance with that because you have lots of checks and balances to chop up DNA and RNA coming in from the quadrillions of viruses that you're exposed to every year. You have a way of maintaining that when you have a dose response that's naturally occurring. In November, we start to artificially create very high densities of viruses in very small particulate matter, and that increases the amount of of genomic information being dumped into perhaps a single lung cell, for example, or a vascular cell behind it, and we get this abnormal absorption of genomic information that can overwhelm our apparatus for balance. And so through changing the terrain of the air, we change the terrain of the genomic transfer of information, and we can reach these unbalanced states. If this was true, then we should be able to show that all of our hotspots of whether it be flu season or coronavirus or whatever it is, we should see high mortality in areas of high pollution. And in fact, you can map all of the hotspots for COVID over exactly the amount of PM 2.5 in the atmosphere across the world. Northern Italy, Hubei province being the most dramatic example, but Northern Italy, then Germany and UK and London there. And then, of course, New York and Louisiana and you know, San Francisco, you just, you pick all your hot spots of PM 2.5 and you're going to see, uh, you know, endemic areas of imbalance with the virome. And that's not just COVID. And that's been my frustration this year as we've been blaming the entire season on a single virus, which has never happened in human history. Every year, there's tens of thousands of different respiratory viruses that are trying to interact with our, our lungs and vascular tree in order to do something good. 
And so if we start to bind PM2.5 through a high year of carbon particulate, which of course happened this year because of the Australian fires. So the Australian fires produced in a single season more PM2.5 than we've ever seen. High days in, in the U.S. of PM2.5 in most of our cities is around 59 parts uh, per cubic meter. Down in, in Australia and then blowing around the entire world now, we've seen that PM, the carbon particulate from the Australian fires have actually now uh, transited the world twice. So mm-hmm. blanket the whole world. But in Sydney and many of the cities that were coming uh, with that smoke coming across, we're reaching 590 and 600 parts uh, per cubic meter of PM 2.5. So 10x increase wow. in PM 2.5. And so, of course, you see Sydney ultimately hit as the Southern Hemisphere gets involved in all that. And if you track with NASA the, the pattern of the PM 2.5 from those fires, they blanketed South America heavy. South America got it heavier. And now, as we move into the, the solar winter of the Southern Hemisphere, we're obviously cleaning up the atmosphere in the Northern Hemisphere right now. And that's why all of the virus goes away in June, July, is we're seeing this decimation. And all these new cases of COVID, that's just because tests are coming positive. It doesn't mean there's actually you know, new epidemic happening. We're just testing everybody now so they can go back to work. And then we say, well, there's new cases. Well, they're not new cases. You're just, you, you've put a, 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 a fallacy of a test in place to, to do this thing. And you're, you're creating the appearance of, of new cases when in fact, you're just looking at the normal blanketing of the whole community at this point. But mortality obviously has gone way down globally. And so even in the US, we're back down to seasonally appropriate mortality as of more than a month ago. And so we're going to keep seeing cases all, because all year, every year, we always see respiratory death. It's always like, you know, between the third and fifth leading cause of death, depending on which time of year you're in. And so we're going to keep seeing deaths from respiratory causes of all sorts, including, of course, COVID. But it's going to be a fraction of what it was in, in the uh, heat of the, of the carbon season. But of course, as we're cleaning up our atmosphere, the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere is going into their solar winter and we're going to see PM 2.5 hit really hard. So, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Of course, Brazil's getting hit hard right now. Ecuador, Peru, uh, Chile. So we're seeing all these numbers rise down the Southern Hemisphere, especially in South America, because the PM 2.5 blanketed them so heavily from those Australian fires that blew right across into their airspace. And so they're going to have very high levels. The other thing to look for when you're looking for a hotspot is socioeconomic class. And, and this is a sad reality that uh, your your poor socioeconomic communities are usually put in undesirable locations, which means next to the refineries uh, of oil and such, which produce enormous not, amount of PM 2.5, and of course, the toxins that go along with it, which are, include things like cyanide. So the physiology that we really see with people dying from this virus is actually cyanide poisoning. That's how they present with hypoxia rather than infection. And so we're seeing this high rate of something that looks exactly like cyanide poisoning in areas of high cyanide in the atmosphere for the mechanism by which the coronavirus can bind PM 2.5, which naturally carries cyanide. And we traffic that into the cell through a, a viral transport system. And we, and we get poisoning, not from a virus, but we get poisoned by the atmosphere that we created. Why do you think it is that, you know, in the context of, you know, how we treated uh, or have been treating COVID patients in the hospital and why, like what you're just saying right now, in my experience thus far, any physician that's sort of spoken to that possibility has been censored, silenced, you know, and it's been actually, you know, that's why I was thinking like as a former pharmaceutical rep, I knew, I know that there 
it's easy to find someone who will shoot the message off that you want to be shot and, and to not give voice to others. And, you know, to say that there's obviously incredibly credible physicians out there. And I was just so like, why is no one speaking out more to this? Why hasn't as a group, um, you know, there been some sort of panel where you get four different physicians giving opinion and thought on treatment protocol and the impact of the protocols that have currently been there, you know, seem to have been, um, you know, contributing to uh, the mortality. Uh, yeah, we definitely did. I mean, uh, in New York hospitals, we reached 88% mortality with what, a syndrome that wow. we're, we're blaming on COVID. There's nothing else that's ever produced an 88% mortality rate. That, you know, Ebola is a 30% mortality rate. Yeah, and so this was the deadliest medical event in history, not for the virus, but for our medical treatment is what I would say. And the, the medical treatment we did to every patient rolling in with, with hypoxia was we threw them on a ventilator, which is the Lord's end, last thing in the, ever you would want to do to a patient with histotoxic hypoxia, because oxygen itself is very inflammatory. Oxygen is at anything greater than atmospheric levels of 20, 21%. Uh, are going to be toxic to the lung surface and more importantly, perhaps to the vascular surface. And no matter how much oxygen you put into the bloodstream, it's not going to improve the patient's condition if they have histotoxic hypoxia. So if they've got something akin to cyanide poisoning, the reason they're turning blue is not because there's not enough oxygen, it's because they can't carry the oxygen. And so there's no way you can fix the problem with a ventilator and high flow O2. And yet every patient got thrown on that. And so we were literally putting fuel on a fire that was already roaring in the, in the blood vessels of these patients only to kill, in the end, kill them with oxygen. And so we, we did something horrible because we couldn't think outside the box. We are very well-meaning people in every hospital, nurses, doctors, scientists. We all want to help human health. We lose rational framework when we start to get afraid. And we were first induced in fear that we had some horrific new virus. And so we were so told such a, a scary story about this virus, when in fact, if we would just have looked at those cruise ships more closely at the beginning of this whole thing, we would have known this was not going to have a mortality much above influenza for the general population. And yes, of course, the normal risk factors of elderly and people with pre-existing conditions would be at higher mortality and the rest. But we would, have, we would have not had the fear paradigm. But instead, we allowed the fear machine, the propaganda machine to rev up. And it did so at, at the risk of those patients that would end up in hospitals, because instead of thinking rationally about these patients that are showing up without fever, so an incredible study was published out of New York, 5,700 patients admitted to New York hospitals over a, a six-week period, and it pooled all of their data. Their average temperature was normal. Their average white blood count was normal without any lymphocyte increase, meaning they had no signs of infection. They had no signs of, uh, of any changes in their bone marrow. They had no inflammatory markers of the vascular tree. The only thing that was happening is they had low oxygen levels and they were starting to show early liver injury. Three days later, they would, show, they would start to fill their lungs with fluid and they would start to get secondary pneumonias and die. But by that time, the virus is already out of the bloodstream. And so if they had virus showing up, it was either on its way out or quickly to be eliminated in the next few days through the normal homeostasis or balance with genetic information that we're capable of. And I would argue, I would be, I think we would be hard pressed to find a single person that actually died with that virus still in their bloodstream. I think the virus was a, was a precursor to deliver more toxin in the bloodstream inadvertently by its natural binding to PM 2.5 and cyanide and other you know, 64 nasty chemicals in our, in our air pollution, 
trafficking that into the bloodstream quickly, we poisoned these patients and they were showing up as if they were cyanide poisoned, not as if they were infected to begin with. If these 5,700 patients had presented with fever and elevated white count and everything else, I'd say, well, okay, so maybe there's some collateral damage from the virus and everything else, but they didn't. They, they literally, like the 50% of people that have tested positive for this virus anyways, that aren't even symptomatic. So most people are asymptomatic when they see the virus. Another some 30, 40% will be mildly symptomatic, some fatigue, a little cough, whatever it is. And then there's, you know, five or 10% that will get severely ill. But of the severely ill category that go on to die, none of them are showing up with those signs of infection still brewing or brewing at the beginning of the process. So we're dying of downstream consequences of hypoxia, which inadvert, you know, incidentally are small blood vessel clotting. And of course, there's a nice little study coming out of Italy now showing the autopsies of all these patients, showing that they're all dying from, from small blood vessel clotting. And they're going into multi-organ failure because they, they're basically having a stroke in every single organ system. That mm. is the result of cyanide poisoning. That's how patients are going to die from hypoxic injury because it creates this massive cytokine event that causes clotting to occur in small vessels. And so both from the presenting features of 5,700 patients in New York hospitals, all the way to the way in which they die and look on autopsy, I can guarantee you they are not dying of infection. They are dying of a poisoning of the environment. And certainly the global population statistics hold that up. So from, from the global hotspots all the way down to the tissue biopsy level, we've proven what this condition is. And yet we still have this fear paradigm. We have people walking around in masks all over the world. And we are social distancing, all this stuff as if that were the mechanism. So why does social distancing have any impact? It kind of looks like it does. Like when we all social distancing a lock up in our homes, Beth goes down. Well, what happens is PM 2.5 goes down immediately. As soon as we all stop driving around, the air pollution clears. And you saw this all over the world. Beijing could see the mountains for the first time in over 30 years. And so you're cleaning up the atmosphere. And as soon as... Hubei province went below 40 parts per cubic meter, mortality went away. And so as wow. soon as the air clears, we stop dying of the poisoning that we're inducing on ourselves that we've called a pandemic of virus. It's a pandemic of toxicity that we've created. And by stopping human transportation, energy, and, and consumptive behavior as a whole, suddenly everything clears up and suddenly the mortality rate goes back to a rational level very, very quickly. Yeah. When I think like, all the stuff that you just shared, I wonder why, you know, is, is there hope that the medical community, because it sort of seems hard to separate politics and medicine right now, will the medical community take into account all of this information and have a different intervention or a different recommendation or a different response? Because it feels as though the media is preparing us for this second wave that will then inevitably cause another lockdown. And you can feel you know, this, there's in the combination with the death of George Floyd and watching what has um, occurred that, that there's just sort of like a, if we have to go back into lockdown, it feels like the humans are, are sick and tired of the way they've been treated, of being restrained, of being, you know, and, and I know that also couples with this argument of like, do your part, you know, let's, like, why can't you just stay home and save your grandma or something like that? And so I don't want to minimize that. Obviously people have lost people that are really important to them. But I also think, I think that we, I said this at the very beginning that we are 
on the edge of one of the greatest mental health crises we've ever seen. And you combine with that the loss of jobs and the continued uh, transfer of wealth that just occurred from the trillions of dollars that have been invested in the U.S., but all over the world that then went into corporations to save them. And, you know, it, it doesn't again, it just contributes to more poverty, more socioeconomic factors. Uh, and then, you know, we now will have the stress of not having money to buy food, to take care of our basic needs, which, you know, I've been saying from the start, like the greatest impact on your health is is isolating yourself, is not being around people, is not, you look at someone, you can't even tell if they're smiling or anything. There's no social cues. They're, they're, we're policing each other. And it, I want to be mindful and compassionate to the side because the fear is what's created that. And I have so much compassion for how fear can take over our ability to think. And I'm also like, this is everything is being able to, because I'm sure there's people listening to this going like, bullshit, I can't believe, you know, they're being challenged by this other way of thinking that would in some ways say, hey, wait, then how we responded in the world is not actually an appropriate response. And as soon as you realize that, that type of thing, you're like, as soon as you have to build the skill set to hold opposing views, then that's actually the solution to any conflict or any understanding or any relationship is the ability to understand different sides of something. And I really am very concerned for the next five to 10 years of what can occur, but I'm also optimistic, you know, as I hear you speak, I'm like, yes, this is the chance. This is the rising. This is a precipice of, of like getting back into a healthy relationship with our planet, with each other, with respect and reverence and love, you know? I totally agree. And, I, you know, around it, are there people starting to change? There's physicians and scientists all over the world trying to speak out and their their voices are starting to sneak through, you know, what is definitely the densest level of censorship we've ever seen. Um, and it's uh, telling that uh, science is getting to this level because we've, we've become very used to censorship at different levels of the sociopolitical, you know, story for decades. And I think, you know, 9-11 was a clear turning point where, where we gave up a lot of civil liberties in, in hopes of better safety as a nation or whatever it is. And now we're seeing a whole nother level of those civil liberties be taken away in hopes of being safe from the viruses, which is this ever-present terrorist now. And so this is the final play. Uh, you know, if you're going to control a population, make them afraid of the air they breathe. And so they can't go any deeper. And I'm excited by that because what I see happening in the midst of the greatest fear they could ever throw on us is human spirit rising. And I see people connecting and I see people going out and growing gardens they've never grown before. And I see people, you know, running out to, you know, help neighbors they don't, haven't even known their names of before. And I've seen, you know, phenomenal examples of, you know, first responders doing, you know, going against the fear paradigm. Um, I'm always intrigued and almost every city I go, the first responders are not wearing masks. And it's such an interesting thing. I, you know, mm -hmm. I have firefighters out there without masks in New York city and police officer in New York city without masks on. Uh, and they're, and they're not afraid, you know, and maybe that's because they know something we know, but I think more than that, likely than anything else, I think they're just saying, this is my job is to be on the front lines and I'm going to do that without fear. I'm going to do it. Uh, on purpose, recognizing that, yeah, maybe I am at higher risk, but I'm going to throw my best effort at this thing. So I see all kinds of reasons why the worst fear that they're ever going to throw at us isn't working. And uh, that's hopeful to me. It's certainly, you know, when you walk around the cities, you could think that it's working. 
and that everybody's still off the streets and everybody's still masked and everything else. But I see below the surface and all the Zoom calls and all the other crap happening around the world right now in the efforts to use technology to connect is the effort is failing. We are literally getting stronger by the day, I believe. And we've never seen more public awareness of this antiquated story of vaccination or human immune system that's totally, you know, the human immune system never kills organisms. It's not, it's not its purpose. It's, it's purpose is to bring you into balance with those organisms. You're supposed to have bacteria and fungi and viruses in every niche of your body. If you were a sterilizing machine, you'd be dead. And so, it, you know, just in the same way that we've misunderstood the human immune system, we've misunderstood vaccines, and the public is starting to realize that. And the public is starting to realize that there's been a long play here by the pharmaceutical industries as a whole to start to really control human behavior for their own profit. And that, for me, is the death throes of any technology. Once you start to try to have to force people to use your product, you're going to fail. Because people are inherently a creative species, and, and they are striving for biologic and psychologic and philosophical and ultimately spiritual freedom. And you cannot suppress that stuff. And it's, it's like mercury and, you know, slipping on a table. Try to, try to squash it. It's going to slip out faster and it's going to move quicker. And it's going to start to find like-minded, you know, uh, minerals to combine with. And suddenly you have a whole bunch of mercury in a pool. We are that slippery mercury now on the planet as, as human beings start to strive for a freedom that isn't about not wearing a mask. Our freedom is about thinking in the stream of consciousness of the universe for the first time, instead of thinking about sociopolitics in these you know, compartmentalized fashions or thinking about education in these pillared fashions, you want to be an engineer or a doctor or anything. My joy is, as a professional hasn't come until I started blowing the walls off my roles and until I became an engineer who's actually a physician. And then I became just a, a hug machine that doesn't have any much identity left in, in the professional field at all. And I just love hugging human beings and finding out about what they're excited about and passionate about now. And that's, that's my, that's my job description now is just like hunt out passion, excitement and enthusiasm for life and, and innovation and co-creativity. And it's a blast. Like never, I never know what's going to hit me in a day anymore. Cause so many people want to share so many want to, to co-create with my companies or with me or whatever it is with each other, you know? And so this is the new, paradigm is one of freedom at the most fundamental level. And so are you going to throw a mask on tomorrow to go into the grocery store? Of course you are, because it's not worth the fight. That's not our fight. Our fight <laughs> yeah, true. is in here. Our fight is internal. And we need to free ourselves at a deep spiritual level from the bonds of socioeconomic rigidity, religious rigidity, you know, all of these social norms we need to blow that whole thing apart at a really fundamental level. And the way that you can become a non-participant in all of those previous paradigms is to stop moving for a moment and become aware of the fact that you're here right now. And that's thousands of years of yoga and Tai Chi and Qigong and meditation and mindfulness of today. And We've known this forever, that the greatest power we have is our ability to be silent and our ability as as a species to become present on multiple levels, spiritual, physical, cognitive, etc., And as we come into a plane of alignment there and we go vertical instead of all these horizontal inputs and, and consumption, we go vertical with all of those things. 
we're going to find ourselves as a powerful agent of change. And we're going to do that in the mode or in the, in the methodology of community. And so ultimately relationship, which you've done such a good job leading the charge on conversation in the public around what is relationship, what does healthy relationship really look like? And what I'm sure you've found in almost every podcast you've ever done around relationship is fundamentally about giving each other the freedom to be who you are and mm-hmm. have absolutely no expectations on your partner or on yourself. And so what if we went into that kind of relationship with mother earth herself, where we have no expectations of survival. Like why would we expect to be able to avoid extinction? Look at how we've behaved. We've been a complete bastard, like just sucking up on using everybody. We have just been a junk species on, on the level of global behavior. Why would we have any expectation of mother nature's grace? Of course, what we find on the microscope all the time is the grace is so abundant And so in excess of any damage we've done before, that just a moment of meditation will give repair and regeneration a capacity to exceed our greatest hopes and expectations. You don't stop having expectations to expect less. Stop having expectations to allow more. And you're going to allow more into your life as you stop expecting as a species that Mother Earth is going to provide for you uh, and that she's going to make enough wealth for you and your kids and everything else. That's not her journey. Her journey is to be literally in a co-creative relationship with you, which means she wants more for you every year in an abundance you can't even picture. And that abundance is going to be, not going to be measured in your bank account. It's going to be measured on how many times are you outside with bare feet laying on the grass, looking up through an a, a, a explosion of patterns of leaves under a tree, and you're looking up at blue sky, and there's clouds, and there's a breeze, and there's a smell of life underneath you with the humus of the soil and, and the incredible scent of flowers blowing by and you, you can hear children running in the distance laughing and you've got you know the, the birds going berserk over you and you've got tree fogs going as the sun starts to set and the the mist starts getting sucked back into the earth as it inspires and you lay there all night long watching the moon rise and you see the stars come out and you see the meteor shower and then you're you start to see mother earth exhale in the morning there's mists coming out of the trees and Going back up in the atmosphere as she exhales a new intelligence and a new capacity for life as a planet. And with that, you see a, a dawn that you've never seen before. You go and move into a relationship that you've never had before, not with any individual, but with an ecosystem, with a biome, with an explosive capacity for biodiversity in and around you. And you've become one with it. And you're going to treat everybody around you much differently. That's ultimately our fight right now. It has nothing to do with masks. It has nothing to do with vaccinations. It has everything to do with, are we rooted into our full potential as a co-creative species? What do you think about, like for people listening who are like, how do I strengthen my microbiome? How do I prepare myself? How do I participate in this, uh, in this balancing that, you, that you're speaking about? Yeah, it's very simple in the end. Fortunately, if we had a if we had to reverse engineer health out of the mess that we've created, it would be literally hopeless. And that's exactly what we've created with the pharmaceutical industry. Is we've become convinced that for every injury we've created, we've got to find a new, you know, non natural molecule to uh, compete with the injury or modify the, the the downward spiral of that disease process that we've created. And it's too complicated. We have never solved any disease. We, we, we kick the can down the road. You know, people don't die from breast cancer, so they die from, you know, COPD a couple of years later. We, we, in the clinical trials, we often will show that we can modify what the person dies from, i.e. if we do a bunch of fancy stuff with chemo and radiation and everything else, we can, by 
five or 10 or 15% reduce the amount of mortality from that disease process. But if we track all cause mortality, they all still die at the same point. They die of some other cause, but we didn't in the, in, in the end extend life. We didn't actually change the trajectory of that person because cancer or heart disease or whatever we're trying to treat are mere symptoms of a collapsing biology. And so you can't change the course of biology by changing the symptoms. It's physically, physiologically, psychologically, philosophically impossible. And so we have to move to this understanding that the terrain has to be one of this regenerative capacity within us. And to get there, you simply go back to the vision we just had, which is how close are to your soil, the water, and the air. And so to rebuild your microbiome, you literally have to get up in it. You can't go think about that. You can't go buy a plastic bottle from Whole Foods of a probiotic and those three species are somehow <laughs> miraculously replace the 5 million species of fungi you don't have, the 30,000 species of bacteria, tens of thousands of species of archaea. You're just not going to get it from the bottle. And so you've got to get up in it if you're going to win the game of, of life ultimately, but certainly of microbiome diversity. And so to go get up in it, which is a term that my wife created in our relationship early on, and I just so love it. You know, we would be driving along and then see this vista of the canyon and the mountain on the other side. And she's like, and I'd be blowing my mind. Like I'm classic for just annoying everybody in the car. Like, oh my God, look at that. <laughs> I do the you same. How beautiful that is. Like that is incredible. And I'll be all in my puppy moment of like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. And I'm here. It's so beautiful. And then my wife would say, well, wait till we get up in it. And then we'd go park the car and go climb up and we'd go up. And a couple hours later, we'd be on that waterfall uh, that we saw from a distance. And we'd go get up in it. And so when you get up in it, what you're doing is you're, you're participating on a level that you never could by seeing it out the window. And right now, we are literally experiencing life through a window, a best case scenario. But way too often, it's, you know, through, through the lens of something like this, you know. And so I was recently eating dinner before right before, before all the restaurants closed with a colleague and we were sitting in one of those like uh little uh bar type seats that has the little shelf in front of a, a bay window looking out on the street and you're eating in, in little benches and we're sitting there talking and this whole gaggle of, of teenage girls comes out of a, a nearby restaurant and is gathered right in front of us just feet away on the other side of the glass and so we're getting this like view of of teenage behavior in front of us. And of these 15 girls, not a single one is looking at each other. Instead, they're looking at each other through cell phones, taking pictures of themselves through the selfies or at their friends, and then immediately looking down to go text that to somebody or send it off with no eye contact. Again, they're back up at the next one. And for 15 or 20 minutes while they're waiting for their rides and everything else, we never saw a single human interaction happen. And that's my concern is that we are not just looking through a window at nature. We're looking at a, through a glass darkly, which is an interesting scripture from the Old Testament and the Hebrew scripts, that this life is like looking through a glass darkly, which is a, a, a terminology for kind of stained glass. And so you, mm -hmm. in the same way that you can't see life, but for general shadows on the other side of stained glass, when we look through the, 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 the glass darkly, when we look through that shadow land, of reality around us, at best, we're just getting a glimpse, a, a slight taste of what is possible on the other side of it. And we're missing the real texture of it, I think, even in the best of moments. And now you you put in lots more filters, literally filters, and, and you're looking at dog faces or whatever you're putting on your, your selfie. 
you're getting to the point where you you've forgotten that you are a freaking miracle and you are a literal scientific and mathematical impossibility. There is no way that you showed up here in the complexity that you are unless there's some miraculous order in the universe within that that you have been born within. And if that's true, then what reverence would we have for one another? And every time you saw an elderly person, you would get down on your knees and ask, is there anything I can do to help you? You know, and furthermore, is there anything that I could learn from you? What, what would you have taught, teach me today? Uh, if we don't learn from the wisdom of our elders in the next decade, it will be gone. The World War II generation is disappearing around us. And I was just hiking this morning with my wife, uh, with a couple of friends. And one of, the woman that we were hiking with is from Germany. And her mother is 90 years old. And she's living over in Germany still. And I asked, how's her mother doing? And, and she said, oh, my gosh, she's so annoyed. She's just like, all of you young people are blowing this whole thing out of proportion. You're exaggerating everything. You should have seen World War II. That was something to be concerned about. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, <laughs> when you that put it into the, perspective. Yeah, that's the best wisdom I've heard in four months. Like, boom, like from the mouth of a 90-year-old, y'all are exaggerating everything. You all are blowing this completely out of proportion. When there's real collapse of empires, I'll let you know because I've seen it. And what's happening right now are the warm-up for the collapse. We are literally seeing all of the posturing and the military state and all of these things that are starting to develop within the United States. We are showing all of the 1930s of Germany. We are showing that in the next 10 years, we will collapse as an empire and we will make radically dangerous and manipulative decisions in that decade if we don't humble ourselves and make room for a new empire to emerge, maybe it's China, maybe it's another one, but wouldn't it be cool if we could participate in a new empire that was not an empire at all, but actually a co-creative society that's looking for a robust and resilient human society that's composed of well-defined self-identity at the national level, at the community level, at the state level, at all these levels. If we decentralize power, and allow self-identity to be recognized at the at the fractal, at the micro level again, we're going to empower a different kind of society. And we could, for the first time, build a human empire instead of a single empire. And as long as that human empire is built on a new economy, that is a soil economy and not an oil economy, oil economies mm-hmm. have to be extractive. It's a limited resource. Soil economies, now that we know how to do regenerative art, agriculture where we can actually build more soil in our nutrient development and production we could actually build an economy that is generative meaning it's going to there's going to be more wealth on the whole planet for every single person in 10 years than it is today because we have built a soil economy that bases currency that bases its value on the soil itself and so a couple of my companies and a lot of colleagues around the, the world are working on what does that look like how do we build monetary systems that do not function apart from soil, water, and air. And if, if that's your top line of, of your currency, then the top line of every company is going to have to be soil, water, and air. And the rest unfold very quickly. And so it's not hard. It's, it's not a difficult thing to envision a much brighter future. And all of you are doing it right now by staying connected, getting more connected, looking to support your communities in new and, and creative ways, looking to pivot your business to serve people in new and creative ways. And letting go and being willing to, to 
to let the fall happen, let the winter happen, let the leaves fall from the trees and identify what plants need to survive and which don't. What's what's the annual plants in your life that need to be done? The season's over and now you can go plant a new garden in your life. What are the projects and activities that you're going to do next year? Don't let it be the previous normal. You need to get engaged and make a new normal so that we don't go destroy the planet faster. We need a new normal and you're going to be part of it by your deep evaluation and discernment over where are you really spending your time over the last 10 years? And do you really want to spend it in that space again? And the more you're able to, to, to surrender to the past, the more room you'll make for a new creative and co-creative regenerative generative force within your life and make sure you're aligning yourself somehow with soil, water, and air, and you'll be part of the new economy. In fact, you'll be a leader in it. When I think about your uh, invitation to allow the seasons to occur, allow um, mortality to be something that is part of our cycle of life, you know, and I, I feel like coronavirus has, you know, you were also speaking about like uh, having a, a admiration and a reverence for the elderly, which we've been, we're so afraid of death that we have tried to, well, we've monetized the effort at appearing youthful or trying to hack our way to youth. And in doing that, we've forgotten that the greatest source of information is from the people who have lived from, you know, we've, we've forgotten about the wisdom of the elders. And that couples with that idea of like COVID has really brought mortality to our face. You know, the, the possibility of it, uh, you know, the day, the fear has really been perpetuated in the idea of like, you might die. And so now we think every stranger is a potential life threat, you know, and that really changes the way we engage with other people. And I've found it like you've spoken um, in a couple of the other uh, talks that I had the pleasure of listening to from you about mortality and our invitation to, to turn towards it. And I've been speaking about it for the last year, just this idea of like, once you can turn towards it and see it as this beautiful act of event in your life, that you can't delay, you know, it's, you can't live as if you're trying to avoid it because you will never really feel fully alive. And, and I, I just really love your perspective on it. So I was hoping you could share something about it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean it, when we think about welcoming in and, and holding reverence for death, it's important for us to realize that the, uh, the lexicon that we have for this event is, has been co-opted by the, a dark perception <laughs> And that was one of the radical transformations in my life. Like if, if I can point to any one thing that's really transformed my whole worldview, my philosophy, my spirituality, everything else, it was watching death. And what happened in those ICUs over the years was a realization that what I was watching was not a death, but actually a birth. And I was watching a, a birth that was on a, on a plane that I had never given witness to. I actually started my medical journey by birthing babies in the Philippines. I was heading for an engineering career and decided to take a year off uh, before starting my program and ran into this opportunity with an aunt to go work in this international group of midwives. And in birthing babies, I saw I, it transformed my whole reality. There was no way I could go into robotics and engineering after that because there was no cooler machine than these human bodies that I was watching delivered in impoverished, devastated areas of the Philippines. That what I was watching was was the resilience and desire for life 
And I realized somewhere in the subconscious field at the time, but now I look back and realize very consciously, I was striving in a, in a dead world. I was striving in a whole ecosystem of dead occupations that I was being channeled into and dead academic jobs that were going to be, you know, soaked in politics and, you know, just darkness. And what was drawing me into medicine was the observation of actual life. And so the poverty has a way of stripping away all of the BS of, of modern society and just showing you the joy of a child, the joy of a mother bringing her first child into the world. And in that magical moment, you witness something that is so potent and powerful that if you're observant of it or present with it, even for a moment, you can't go backwards. It, it infects every cell in your body with this desire for more light. And I have to say it was 10x when I saw my first really beautiful death. And when I say a beautiful death, it was a death that wasn't buried in narcotics. You know, we have a way of drugging all of our dying people right now. So they don't even get to exhibit the journey they're, they're really on. And so we think of death as this like shutting down of all the systems. Death is a getting out of the way. The biology is finally getting out of the way and releasing, surrendering, this this effervescent spirit that is so much more grandiose and so much more uh, awe-inspiring than anything the biology could have ever done. And it's releasing that back into the environment at large, the universe as a whole. And so as we release in this second birth, the, the rate of healing that I would witness, you know, a, a single word from a patient who's dying, this patient who's transforming and metamorphosing into a totally different energetic state can say one word to an estranged daughter or son after 30 years and you see immediate healing happen. They can speak mm -hmm. right to the heart of a matter in a split second because they the veil is off, the blinders are off. They can see their life for its great purpose that it was. No matter how broken that life looked, I saw people in the ICUs and in, in, you know, even single shifts, you could see people of extremely divergent backgrounds going into the same joy state in the last few hours and minutes of their life, realizing how beautiful it all was. Suddenly, the human construct or story they'd been telling themselves of all their failures and broken relationships and blah, 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 they saw it in a completely new you know, version of perfection. I came in with some purpose, and it, it came out of that mess that I called my life. That messy story ex ex created something I didn't know was there. And for some of my patients, it's not bucolic. It's not like, oh, we were just one. Now I see I was just jumping through the daisies the whole time. For some of my last, you know, for some of my patients, the last thing they will say is a scream that is, I can't, I've only seen this happen a couple of times, but it is so memorable when it happens. It, it, it is a scream from some soul place that I don't think I have discovered in myself yet. It is such a deep truth. It is such a fundamental rapturous and renting sound that will come out of these patients as they scream their truth with their last breath or two. And in that scream, they have seen the whole thing. And it may be a righteous anger. It may be a righteous judgment on the brokenness of the human species, but they are speaking from this space that is so pure and terrifyingly pure. And so it, it doesn't need to look pretty. It just needs to look freaking real. <laughs> and that's, that's yeah. what we're missing as humans. Is it is very hard to pull something really freaking real out of this little machine right here.
And this is why we need to, to start to break bread together again. It is critical that you start setting a, ta- a spot at your table to get a neighbor over. Don't meet in big groups if they won't let you. Meet in small groups. It'll be more potent. Have a couple over that you haven't met before, or you met and haven't had a chance to really get to know, and just talk about something real. Maybe somebody lost a loved one recently. Maybe it was over this whole pandemic thing, or more likely they lost a pet last week and nobody's allowing them to grieve that because everybody's so worried about this pandemic thing. Grieve with them. I know they're grieving if they're human right now because grief is the reaction to change. Change is the only thing we can count on. And we've never seen more radical change happen in a shorter period of time than any time in the last four months. So everybody's grieving something right now. That would be an interesting dinner topic. Start with your highs and lows was one of the podcasts that I was on recently. Tell me your high and your low of the last four months. The same way you could say, what is your joy and what is your grief right now? And, and listen to another human being express that because I guarantee you they've got more joy and more grief in their life than perhaps they've ever had before at deeper levels than they've ever had it before as the world tears itself apart right now. And so we have an opportunity to share a meal to fellowship over the bounty of, of nutrients that this planet has created for us to live on in that, in that sharing of food, we will show, we will reveal the spiritual truth of soil, water, and air as it becomes a biophotonic force on our plate in the forms of squashes and eggplant and cucumbers and parsley and cilantro and all the beautiful stuff that just drives my palate to, to these joyous levels <laughs> because we are a biophotonic miracle as a planet. And we get to partake in that, that miracle of life. And in sharing that, we will we will elevate it to a new level of vibration or consciousness, and we will start to realize a, a much deeper and more be- more profound beauty than we've ever witnessed before. Amen to that. I want to be part of that. That's a that's a juicy way to think about moving through what we are all going through now, which is a collective state of anxiety, a collective state of uh, grief, of anger, of all the th- emotions that are so necessary for transformation. And um, it is just such an honor to have you on, to be able to share your perspective, your view, your experience. And, you know, coming from having, you know, been through medicine and seen that whole world, I was really just so grateful of, of a different way of seeing it. And um, thank you so much for uh, elevating and, and speaking with a megaphone so we can get some, we can hear uh, the beauty and wisdom in, in your experience and, and to put what we're going through into a different perspective that's not just about fear that's about actually understanding the data in a way that it makes sense for us that is finally it's like oh yeah that actually makes sense if you're not just if you're just consuming mainstream media you will just be consumed by fear um but when we can get access to voices like yours then we're like wait oh, this is how the world works. This is how viruses work. This is the importance of the microbiome. This is why I need to go hiking and hug a tree and put my hands in the soil and put my feet in the water and hug another human being or just give them the presence of my of witnessing, just witnessing. So thank you so much for being here, Zach. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here and to reassure all of you that there was a great study that showed if you get more than seven hugs a day, you have a 35% lesser chance of getting a respiratory virus. So go hug the, hug the heck out of everybody. <laughs> that's, a, that's the best prescription ever. <laughs> Thanks so much again. Oh, and I'm sure people are like, I want more information. How do I find out more stuff about uh, Zach Bush? 
So please, where do, where do they find you? Easy enough. So ZachBushMD.com is my education website that just has a lot of information a lot, you know, around a lot of issues from pregnancy to sleep to nutrition to exercise and uh, some perspectives on that. And as I've kind of deconstructed and reconstructed my worldview in medicine. Um, and then uh, we have uh, ionbiome.com, which is our soil science uh uh, page that really dives into how we've been extracting intelligence from the microbiome through soil. Uh, we created enough products uh, for human health and resilience that goes to support that self-identity we were talking about early on. So when you put the communication network of microbiome in your gut, you suddenly lace your gut and vascular system together tightly uh, and form that, that firm self-identity that's so critical to everything from your neurologic function to your sleep quality to your sex drive all the way to longevity and metabolic function and beyond, you have to have that clear boundary. And so it's a very cool story of how we discovered that in the soil and uh, kind of how we are now envisioning the opportunity to put ourselves out of business as a, a biotech company. If we can channel all of that back into our nonprofit, which is at farmersfootprint.us, where we're teaching farmers how to transition from chemical farming into regenerative soil-based yeah. uh, farming to get a new economy built around these farmers. I would love to see the elimination of the, the supplement industry as much as I would like to see the elimination of the pharmaceutical industry. I think over the next 30 years of really good soil care, we will eliminate both. Wow. I love that mission. As a former pharmaceutical rep, <laughs> I, can, I can attest to that. So uh, thank you again for being here. 